drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for Australia's best conversations. I'm Andy Park. T20 has changed the face of cricket, drawing new fans and big money to a new sport. But what's it been like to be part of that change, to grow up loving the five-day test format and then shift to the shorter form? Dan Christian is one of the sport's top players. He's been part of the championship teams across several different countries and he's represented Australia in the T20 and one-day games. He's just released a memoir with cricket writer Gideon Haig entitled The All-Rounder and he's my guest in the drawing room. Welcome to you, Dan. Come on in, take a seat. Thanks for having me. You grew up in country New South Wales, the small town of Narandra, west of Wagga. What was the pathway to professional sport like uh, when you were growing up? Did the dream of becoming a professional sportsman, uh, was that attainable at all? Not at all. I didn't, I didn't think it was. Uh, just playing uh, cricket in the summer and rugby league in the winter and, and doing that in the backyard or every day of the year, pretty much, one or the other. And then into school, I never played any representative cricket when I was living in the country. It was only really when I moved to the city, when I was about 12 years old, and my, my parents split up and I moved to the moved to Sydney with mum. And uh, yeah, and then I started getting picked in or started getting recognised in a few little representative teams that, that you know, things started to get a bit more serious, I guess. So how did cricket win over rugby league for you? I was just better at it. It was a pretty easy decision in the end. My uh, school coach, uh, school rugby league coach, he was the one that sort of pushed me in that direction. I played it all the way up to year 12. Played in the national championships, the grand final of the national championships, of the Nutrigrain Cup, as it was called back then. Um, and I got knocked out cold in the first 10 minutes. And, um, yeah, that was a, <laughs> after that, it was a pretty easy decision. I thought, yeah, no, nah, cricket, cricket for me. And my, yeah, my coach, school coach at the time said, yeah, mate, I think you should probably go down that path as well. So when you are a young man and you've, got, and you've got the talent, as you obviously did, to consider professional cricket, what is the pathways? You mentioned some of those sort of feeder competitions, if you like, that sort of escalate up the ranks. But where did you go once you'd made that decision to become a professional? It was at that stage, well, for, for most cricketers, it's, it's through grade cricket or premier cricket, as they now call it. Uh, so for me, I started as a as a 14-year-old, I started playing fourth grade and then a bit of third grade that year, the next year into second grade, and then made my first grade debut in Sydney when I was 16. Um, and then you start getting recognised. Once you're in that grade system, you start getting recognised for New South Wales, uh, New South Wales underage teams, the under-17s and the under-19s, and then there's um, there are Australian under-17s, under-19s teams as well. So I got picked sort of all the way through those, um, and it's not – and it's only then you sort of think, oh yeah, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm still a chance. But even that was you know, 20, 20 odd years ago, a bit over twenty years ago, and it was still, even when you're making those young Australian teams, the under 19s team, you still feel like you're a long, long way away from, from making that main team. It's a, it was a case of you know, scoring lots and lots of runs and taking lots of wickets in in club cricket just to get a New South Wales contract, uh, and then doing really well in state cricket to, to get an opportunity to play for Australia. Cricket is undeniably a game of tradition. And I remember when 20, uh, T20 was first introduced, it was a novelty. There were plenty of naysayers, but now it's big business. Do you remember some of that pushback when that format of the game was first launched? Definitely, yeah. My 
I played in the the first couple of years in Australia, and I got to play with one of my idols growing up, Andrew Johns, the great the great rugby league player. He played half a dozen games or three or four games for for New South Wales. So that's how that's how it was thought of then. Um, it was very much a novelty and very much a a uh, just a, a format they to to try and get people's eyes back on cricket, where they could then you know move into watching ODI cricket and and Test cricket. One of the things I do remember most about playing for New South Wales at the beginning uh, was when you play for New South Wales, you the the crest on your on your cap or your uh, helmet um, has a red cross on it when you make the when you make the the Sheffield Shield team, and there was blowback at the time from guys in New South Wales that if you made the twenty twenty team that you should not get a red cross on your cap. You should have the light blue cross that was reserved for, you know, the second 11 or the underage team. So it just weren't, just wasn't seen as being a, a serious competition or a, um, a, a format worthy of, of saying that you represent the, the state. Back in 2011, uh, you were picked up on a US $900,000 contract for two years. That's an extraordinary <laughs> amount of money for a, a young person. What was that moment like when you put ink to paper on that contract? Uh, it was it was like winning the lottery. It was a it was a crazy five minutes, really. It was. Uh, who, who was in the room when you when you signed that contract, and who was the first person that you shared the news with? It's a draft system, so it's out on the. Um, they well these days they stream it or they film it, they um, put it on TV. But back then it, it was sort of like a chat room um, on the on the ESPN Crick Info website. So your name would come up in this chat room. And so my reserve price at that stage was $50,000. I didn't think I was going to get picked up. And I thought if I get picked up, that'd be fantastic. I'm going to get to go overseas and, and play against Sachin Tendulkar and, and with guys like you know, Dale Stain or Kumar Sangakara, legends, absolute legends of the game. And if I get that opportunity, that'd be fantastic. And then you get the owners of the franchises get in a bidding war for your services and you watch it refresh on this chat room every 30 seconds it's gone from 50,000 to 100,000 to 150,000 to 200,000 it's just it's you you just feel like you're winning the lottery um I was on the phone at the time watching it with a good friend of mine Sean Tate who was also in the auction he got picked up that year as well um, and we were just laughing, laughing the whole way through it, just thinking this is the, the weirdest experience I've ever been involved in. I've literally just won the lottery for two years of, two years of, of pay like that. Um, in saying that, as amazing as it sounds, and it was amazing, it, I didn't realise at the time how much pressure would come with a price tag like that, which made the playing in the tournament really difficult and, and I, probably didn't handle, I probably didn't handle the pressure that came along with it. So let's talk about that because, I mean, it's probably fair to say that those first couple of seasons in the Indian Premier League didn't go to plan. What was going through your mind and what were those pressures that you're referring to and where do you feel that pressure? Is it on the pitch or offered or, or both? Yeah, both. It's, it's definitely both. You've got the fans and the media and the owners and uh, every all the stakeholders in in the IPL that, that know that you've just been – Bought for nine hundred thousand dollars a season, and they want uh, they want your performances to to reflect nine hundred thousand dollars a season. Despite me only being a kid and having only played you know, thirty or forty games at that stage, I just I just wasn't ready for it. I wasn't I wasn't good enough really at that stage. But 
that's kind of how it is. You're just thrown in the deep end and you're expected to perform. Uh, and I just wasn't able to, wasn't able to handle that pressure. I probably put too much, I probably put too much of that pressure on myself at that stage, um, where I would let those outside uh, opinions, I guess, influence how I was, how I was training, or um, you know, treating, treating my preparation for games, and I just put just put too much pressure on myself and was unable to unable to perform with the the kind of freedom uh, that I guess has given me the success since. You write in your book that the way I was taught to cope with failure is by being honest about what I've done wrong. Virat Kohli simply doesn't admit failure. Is that an approach you wish you could take or do you prefer looking at your flaws and being honest about them? Yeah, I, I think you need to have a combination. I've, I've played with Virat a couple of times now. I played with him back in 2013 and I played with him again uh, this season just gone. He's such a brilliant player and he's one of his one of his biggest strengths is being able to overcome that failure so quickly. I'm sure he does the same kind of reviews and you know self-reflection after after matches, particularly after failure. I'm sure he does that as much as anyone else. But the way that he's then able to overcome that and trust in what that and trust in his process and trust that what he does to to walk out and have that same kind of success, um, it just feels like he it's always it's almost like it's always someone else's fault that he failed. It's you know it was a bad decision, or I got a, I got an unbelievable ball, or the ball didn't bounce very much, or a guy took a great catch, or whatever it is. He's just never feels like he's out of form, and subsequently always walks out to bat, uh, you know, feeling like he's he's going to dominate the game and, and win the game for his team. Given the sort of contracts that we were talking about earlier, the sort of money that was being thrown about in those early days of T20, uh, it's interesting to think about the, the the effect on the Australian players that came through with that generation such as yourself. I mean, can you imagine the days before T20 competitions now? Yeah, you almost feel a little bit uh, – well, it's, a, it's almost a little bit embarrassing when I, when I think of the guys that I – that I grew up watching or even guys that I, that I knew about that were playing the Sheffield Shield in the late 90s, early 2000s and dominating the Sheffield Shield, averaging over 50 with the bat, taking 50 wickets and they couldn't break into that Australian team. Uh, And, and they're, you know, hardly making, they're hardly making any money in that, in that environment. And then we're now, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing where the game's gotten to and we're now able to go out and make, you know, the top guys, the top guys are making millions and millions of dollars and, and, some of them not even playing for their country. So it's, it's extraordinary how much the game's changed. And I guess we have to be, as players now, we have to be really thankful to those guys for the, for the path, um, for the paths they took and, and particularly the work that, you know, the ACA has done for us, the Australian Cricket Association has done for us as a, as a union and their, um, and their agreements with Cricket Australia that have, that have made, being a professional cricketer in Australia is so lucrative um, that's then opened the doors for us to be able to go overseas and, and, and play competitions like the IPL. On ABC RN, I'm Andy Park. Cricketer Dan Christian is my guest in the drawing room and we're talking about his new memoir, The All-Rounder. Dan, you captained the Australian Aboriginal Eleven on the anniversary tour of the 1868 Indigenous team. What did that mean, that moment, mean for you? That was a wonderful experience, very very humbling to be a part of uh, such a uh, such a wonderful anniversary and and to learn more and more about uh, what that what that team went through back in 1868 I was lucky enough to do it in 
in 2009 on a much smaller scale, Cricket Australia sent almost a, it was a development team of uh, young 17, 18, 19 year olds over to the UK and to retrace the footsteps of that 1868 team. Uh, and then we did it again in, in 2018 for the 150th anniversary and it was done. It was a lot bigger and um, yeah, celebrated, celebrated a lot more uh, as well. And, we went to go. We went to all the places. We played at all the places that um, that team played in 1868. Um, or retraced their footsteps, and we were able to go to Lords as well, catch up with the Australian team, um, go in the dressing rooms and be shown around there, and go to the Lords Museum that had some memorabilia from from that tour from 1868 as well. Um, yeah, just a really great experience to be a part of, and you know, great that someone like to see now someone like Scott Boland who played in that team with me to now for him to now um, have played in the ashes and, and be doing so well. It's a, just a great example of, of um, the pathway, I guess, that some of those, those younger kids could, can use to, to, um, you know, try and make cricket a, try and make cricket a, um, a, a viable, a viable option for them as kids. And, you know, to have people role models like Scott Boland and, and Ash Gardner, who was, the captain of the women's team that came on that tour as well. Um, yeah, they've both been wonderful ambassadors for Indigenous cricket since since that trip. So I think it was a, as, as good as it was to uh, retrace those steps and, and um, be a part of the history of it. It's uh, been a great stepping stone as well, I think, for, uh, for Indigenous cricket in the country. You've also experienced pushback as you've begun speaking out about issues affecting Aboriginal people in this country. How do you deal with that? I mean, is it easy enough to ignore if you feel like you're doing something important? Can you block out the noise when you're committed to the cause, so to speak? I think so. Yeah, I, I'm reasonably measured, I think, with with what I choose to comment on publicly. I don't if there's if it's an issue that I that I don't feel strongly about, then I'm you know, I might have a, a small opinion, but I certainly won't publicize it. If um, but yeah, if I'm if I'm pretty confident with with what I'm with what I'm saying and the issue that I'm talking about then I'm then I'm happy to I'm happy to speak out about it and, and happy to cop the blowback I think that's just part and parcel of um, part and parcel of someone that's that that's in the limelight I guess that that um, has the kind of reach that that uh, you know us as professional sportsmen do you write in your book that it wasn't your choice to stop playing first class cricket. What was that moment like when the contract wasn't renewed? How did you figure out the next step to take? It was pretty disappointing. We'd um, had a lot of success at uh, Victoria in the in the Sheffield Shield. We won three Sheffield Shields in a row, and I absolutely loved my time playing for them. Then I played the next year after that, and we didn't go so well. And I think because we didn't go so well, they they figured that. Um, they're going to get some more, get some younger kids in, and, and um, yeah, make way, make way for myself and a couple of the other older guys. So it was, it's pretty disappointing. Even though now I look back, I was only thirty three. It was um, yeah, pretty disappointing to to finish it up when I did. But I was kind of lucky. It was a blessing in disguise. It, it meant that I ended up playing a lot more twenty twenty. I was already, I think I was in England at the time, ready to start the tournament over there. Um, and it gave me, I think it probably gave me a bit more direction in terms of being able to just focus on my 2020 cricket and just work on those skills rather than having all three formats to, to work on. And, I, and in hindsight, it, um, it worked out pretty well. My, my 2020 cricket over the last few years has been the best, the best cricket of my career. So 
um, yeah, like I said, a bit of a blessing in disguise and nice to be able to just focus on those those particular 2020 skills. I was going to ask you about those skills which are particular to the format within the sport of cricket. I mean, you've got tests, you've got one-dayers, you've got T20. How do you think about the skills that are required differently to each one? Because there are endless, endless uh, days of cricket commentators talking about the differences, but I want to know what a cricketer thinks about stepping out on the pitch for those different formats and what you need to think about differently amongst them. Funnily enough, the the, the best way I find to train for my 2020 is, is by training the exact same way I would train for four-day cricket, having that real base of your skills in order. So, you know, a good forward defence for like you would in four-day cricket and having a good ball to bowl on the top of off stump, you know, with with a, as you would with a red ball. Um, and when I've got that part of my game that I feel like that part of my game's in order and I've got that basis, then I can then start working on my um, expression stuff, I guess. So now that I've had uh, I've had a couple of months off now since the since the BBL finished, uh, I'll pretty much go back into almost like a red ball training just to get everything ticking over to get you know, a few more Ks in the legs and um, get my body used to bowling again and get my body used to you know hitting balls again. And then once I've got that base built up, then I'll start practicing this, the 2020 specific stuff like bowling more Yorkers, bowling more slower balls, uh, and and trying to hit sixes, trying to hit sixes, uh, pretty much as soon as I get out to the crease, which is which is my job really. Coming in late in the innings, I've got to try and go from ball one. So from a training perspective, yeah, making sure that I've got that base, that really traditional cricket base set up first, and then being able to express myself from there. Playing cricket during COVID must have led to a few significant alterations to your plans. I know you had to make your own call to get out of Pakistan when cases started to ramp up there. Tell me about playing in empty stadiums and the kind of unknowingness of training for a competition that perhaps may not go ahead. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. Pakistan, I felt I felt like I was making a, a really um, a really big decision by leaving the the Pakistan Super League on the day I did. I flew out of Pakistan on the morning. Uh, I can't remember the exact date, but it was in um, early March sometime. And the morning that I left, the competition then got called off that afternoon. So it wasn't um, – it, it, well, it justified me making that, that decision, I guess. Playing in front of the empty stadiums is difficult. It almost feels like you're back in uh, almost in club cricket, despite the fact that, you know, in the IPL, I've got Virat Kohli standing next to me and AB de Villiers on the other side. It almost feels like a club game because you've got no, there's no loud music and there's no supporters screaming your name and, um, you know, screaming your team's name. So it just doesn't have that same atmosphere that gets the adrenaline flowing um, and, and really can really get you up, really get you up for the game, even when you just walk out for your warm up. So it's, it's difficult. It's a completely different feeling, very foreign feeling for um, for a professional cricketer, I think, to to walk out in in empty stadiums. So that's that was a that was a difficult thing to get used to. To still try and um, get yourself up to perform. Once the game starts, it, it it probably doesn't make too much difference because you get into the game, and even when you're playing in front of a big crowd at the beginning of the game, you you know they're there. But once it starts, it's you kind of just get into the zone and and you sort of tend to zone out a bit. So, yeah, pretty foreign, but but one of those things you get used to. 
Dan, you closed the book by saying that I've always played for enjoyment, and I have to say that this year was not, on the whole, all that enjoyable. That was back in January this year. How are you feeling about the game now after a bit of time has passed? Yeah, much better, much better. It's, I joined bubbles, quarantine bubbles and isolation bubbles in July 2020, and January uh, this year, January 22, I, I finally got out of them, apart from a week or two here or there. Um, so I needed the break. I was due for the break um, and I've really enjoyed the break. And, and now I'm really looking forward to getting back into it in May. I head over to England in May to play their 2020 competition uh, and I can't wait. I've, I've had the, the wonderful distraction of a, of a four-month-old daughter that was born in <laughs> December. She's been She's been great it's been awesome to watch her grow and um and yeah just just be a part of that experience has, has just been um been amazing i've loved every minute of it and it it's sort of helped me reflect a little bit on my cricket more than and just enjoy it for what it is and not have to not have to stress too much about it because i've got you know, i've got little harper there waiting for me at home it's been yeah really has been a wonderful experience and um i think it's yeah it's, i think it's going to help my cricket a lot for the next at least 12 months dan i've so enjoyed our chat thanks for your time in the drawing room and all the best uh, for the new phase of your career both professionally and of course personally thanks very much thanks andy cheers dan christian has been my guest in the drawing room his memoir the all-rounder is out now You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.